Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome James Toback. Thank you very much, David. And um, uh, the, uh, the only thing I'll say before, um, I'll say a little bit before, because actually Fingers is a rather numbing film. And usually it's, <clears throat> I think, with these, these setups, it's better to, to do the talking afterward. But uh, I find that, uh, well, when Fingers first came out, there were a lot of people who wanted to uh, castrate me when the movie was over. In fact, um, there was a screening at Arthur Knight's class at uh, USC Film School before the movie opened, and this sort of angelic-looking girl walked towards me after it was over as I was sitting there with Arthur Knight, and I thought to myself, what a, what a sweet and lovely face this girl has. I wonder what, what odd compliment she's going to uh, <laughs> give me. And uh, she stood there trembling, and I thought, how touching, look how nervous she is before saying what she has to say. And then she said, I just want to say one thing and then I'm going to leave. I am not a violent person, but I would like to take a kitchen knife and stick it in your face. <laughs> and Ar Arthur Knight, who um, was this <laughs> kind of uh, austere, elderly gentleman, um, who actually made me squeamish about swearing when I was around him, looked as if he were going to fall off his chair and die. I mean, it, he turned beet red and he sort of fumbled an apology. Um, I said, well, there's no need to apologize. Obviously, the movie didn't agree with her. But um, the, the, uh, the, the overall effect usually is actually to, to make people, whether they respond uh, the way she did or more generously, uh, is to not to want to talk or to feel somewhat wordless. So anyway, I'll just say a couple of general things now, and then whoever does want to ask questions afterward, obviously be happy to answer them. But um, um, I had never directed a movie before I directed Fingers. But I'd written one, uh, The Gamble, with Jimmy Conn and Lauren Hutton, which uh, Carol Rice directed, and I was around that film all the time, but I'd never studied film at all. I'd never studied directing. I really knew nothing about how to make a movie. And I, uh, I said to Carol Rice, do you mind, since you're going to use me, which he did for both rewriting and general advice in a world he didn't know well, without my getting any extra money for it, do you mind if I use this occasion to educate myself? He said, no, feel free. I said, well, I don't mean just casually. I mean, will you tell everybody that he or she is supposed to answer whatever questions I have. They sort of look at me and say, well, we are making a movie. It might, it might impinge on certain people's functions to say that you, could, you always have to snap to attention if Jim has a question about how to do something. He said, but within reason. And that, I did actually use it for that purpose. And then what happened was um, I wrote this script for Fingers, and it read, unlike Vicky and unlike Bugsy and unlike... Uh, most of my other scripts, the pickup artist, like a completely inaccessible, obscene, semi-pornographic movie. 
um, to the point where everybody who read it first said, well, this is a, a kind of hardcore X, right? And I never thought of it that way, and I knew that it wasn't really, but it read that way. I mean, the dial, there's quite a bit of dialing in which you see it on the page. And, the, and, um, and I, I was getting absolutely nowhere in getting it financed, and, you know, very few people want to take a shot with a first-time director anyway. Um, but with a script like that, and with a, with a cast which was totally uninteresting to anybody, Harvey Keitel at the time was, a, was, was not in demand at all as a leading man. Um, um, Jim Brown had done some action films, but you weren't, this movie like this, forget it. Tisa Fowler had been driving a cab and working as a bartender. So it was not a cast that was going to draw anyone. And Danny Aiello, no one had heard of at the time. So that wasn't going to help. And on the other hand, I just thought, well, this is what I want to do. I'm going to hang with it. Then one day I saw, uh, I saw George Barry, who ran Fabergé, um, with Florence Davis, Miles Davis' ex-wife, thought that he looked like a rather unconventional perfume guy. And to make a long story short, um, got him to finance the movie. Nobody else would have. And everybody at Fabergé tried to keep him from doing it, as you'll see when you see the movie. It's not a movie that looks to be the film financed by a perfume company. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then when it was done, um, met with tremendous adversity. There were a few people who really hooked into it and, and sort of cru were crusaders for it. And then once it got to Europe, Truffaut and Fassbinder in particular and Daniel Schmidt and some other directors really got behind it and did a great deal for it. When it first opened here, Vincent Canby and Janet Maslin as an entry really tried to kill the movie. I mean, it was a kind of conscious effort to see that the movie closed and vanished. And then there were quite a few people who sort of took their cue from them. So it had a very, very rough beginning. Um, and it sort of has taken about 10 or 15 years for it to um, get out there around the world. And, and it's now doing that. Um, but anyway, it's still going to be a sort of rugged movie to talk about afterward. This is all I'll say for now. And those of you who wish to remain and not try to get me with a kitchen knife, I'll talk <laughs>
they were sitting at Cinema, Cinema 2, and when that happened, Richard Jordan howled with laughter. He found it funny, which <laughs> not many people did. There were other occasions. Blair Brown punched him and said, if you find that funny, I don't want to be with you, and walked out of the theater, and then told him she thought the whole movie was disgusting because of that. Anyway, I, I, I saw it at an airport not long after that. I had met Jordan by then, and he told me this story, and I went up to her and I said, I just want to introduce myself to you because you're one of my biggest admirers. And she said, well, who are you? I said, Jim Toback. She blushed. Anyway, we became friends. But my, <laughs> my point is that that scene, a lot of people took to be an expression of, um, in some way, um, my way of looking at the world, or, or that there was some sense of approval. And that had to do with, at the, there was an awareness at the time it was written about, that I had lived with Jim Brown for two years and been very friendly with him. And he had been arrested for doing that six times uh, for that very thing. In fact, that's what gave me the idea to do it, because it, it kind of haunted me. And. Um, I think that, uh, you know, John Simon went on television and said that I was encouraging people to do this by approving and stuff. And often, you know, you, you, people confuse the, uh, it's, it's this idea that if something's on screen, you're, uh, you are advocating it. Um, and the whole idea of presenting a character you can root for, sympathize with, at least. But even now, that phrase is everywhere in, in, in movie making. Who, who are we supposed to root for? Who are we supposed to identify with? Uh, so I think for a lot of those reasons, this, this, this movie, and then also it, it's perception when something comes out. A movie of this kind needs big support from a lot of places to have a shot. And this movie got very little support and a huge amount of rage. I mean, uh, about six or seven years ago, somebody sent me uh, all the stuff that had been written about Fingers. He's a Fingers fanatic from the Philippines. And um, <laughs> he had sent me a letter saying that he, that he knew the movie by heart and all of a sudden just wanted to introduce himself and that he'd saved everything that had been written about it. And I didn't have anything that had been written about it. So I wrote him back and I said, if you want to Xerox everything you have of this, I'd like to see it. I'm curious because I remember it being quite vicious, but I, I'd like to get... He sent me this huge dossier from around the world. I mean, the Australian reviews and the Dutch reviews translated. I mean, it was everything. And I looked at um, some of the stuff in New York, and it was mind-boggling. And uh, uh, it, it pretty much killed it. I mean, you can't open a movie at Cinema 2 and have... Uh, the New York Times write three long articles about what a vile and despicable movie this is and how you should die before you see it. And, uh, and then uh, um, New York Magazine and um, just about everybody in the sort of New York, uh, in that, the very people you needed to, in the Village Voice, the very people I was interested to see because they said here this, you know, like James Hart brings his cult classic to the thing, you know, the voice fucking tried to run it off the planet, you know. Um, so, by the way, Vincent Canby, i got to just tell you one funny thing about this. Vincent Canby, who really was just, it was like 30 paragraphs of venom on this movie that opened at one theater, 200-seat theater. And three years later, I came out with a movie called Love and Money, and his whole review was bemoaning that I'd lost the intensity I had in fingers in Love and Money. <laughs> well, in your script for um, Vicky, which was, um, was, I guess, written 
But before this, you have Vicky saying you're nothing. And this is set in the 19th century, but she's saying you're really nothing until you've been attacked by the New York Times. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Were you surprised at the Times' reaction? Or, or I did... wasn't because they had done the same thing to me on The Gambler with Jimmy Conn and Lauren Hutton. What happened was Penelope Gilead, who was living with Vincent Canby and uh, was, a, was a screenwriter herself and a film critic for The New Yorker and a kind of very sort of sad, pathetic drunk, had... had, had <laughs> had one night slobbered all over herself at Elaine's at a table in a really embarrassing way. And she was constantly sort of interrupting. And I was trying to talk to a friend of mine. Um, so, so. <laughs> so. Okay. There will be. You'll have. Okay. Please. You'll have time. Will you? There will be time. Please. There will. We always have questions from the audience, and we we've only had two questions so far. Okay. Please. You'll have your time. This is this is like okay. the original screening. <laughs> so, <coughs> but uh, so what happened was. Um, I heard, you know, from that that Canby had had it in for me, and I told Carol because she, she, I, I was unpleasant with Penelope that night, and uh, Carol Rice said, "Don't worry about it. She's a friend of mine from England, and she's very kind to all my movies. And I, after all, directed this movie, so I'm sure she'll be very kind." She not only he not only viscerated the movie, he went after me and half. So there, there are these vendettas that go on, and they're very petty, and they're very intense, and they they can be very long term, and they can be very destructive. And particularly if you're making movies, people always say, oh, it doesn't matter. Movies succeed. Reviews don't matter. They don't matter uh, too much if the movie is a racer, a movie that everybody sort of knows in advance is going to be bad because the word is out. But it doesn't matter. The movie is going to spend $30 million. It's going to get out. But if you take a small movie and you get nasty, angry reviews, forget it. Can Be Killed, one of Antonioni's last films, it was supposed to open, uh, Dan Talbot canceled the whole opening, never opened in New York, because he saw, an er it was an early response, and just said, can't, can't show it. If, if I don't have a good review from the New York Times, I'm not going to book it. This was independently produced. What was the distribution of Fingers like? I mean, how many screens? Were that was the other problem. It was distributed by Brute, which was a perfume company, and they had never <laughs> distributed anything before. They had a deal with Fox that had just run out, so George Barry said, I know how to distribute. I'll distribute the movie. So it opened in, I think, uh, 200 theaters, uh, and it played, um, it played for about two or three weeks, and most of them and vanished. Roger Ebert, who did love the movie and was very good about it from the beginning, told me that in Chicago it was the second film on a double bill with a movie called Drum with Ken Norton. The, the thing for Drum was Mandingo lit the fuse, Drum is the explosion. And on the marquee it said, Ken Norton is Drum, Jim Brown is Fingers. <laughs> so, so that's how it opened in Chicago. <laughs> Did um, Harvey Keitel, could you talk about getting, uh, getting him to do the role and how... how how he felt about seeing the script, his reaction to the script. That was kind of a funny thing. I had, I had, uh, I had been very friendly with Bob De Niro, who had wanted to be play the gambler, and uh, and then Cal Rice decided to use Jimmy Conn instead, which turned out okay. But I had been upset, and Bob was very upset, and I think sort of held it against me because I had, I went to him first about doing Fingers, and he kind of delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, and he and Harvey were best friends.
friends, and I had never met Harvey, but I liked him a lot in Mean Streets, and I finally said to uh, Bob, you know, this is, this is silly, you know, if, if you don't want to jump in, I really actually want to go to Harvey, because I think he'd be very good too. He said, well, give me another week, and I said, okay, and then another week, he said, just give me another week, I said, now I'm going to go to Harvey, and paradoxically, this was in the poll lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel, we had this conversation, that day later, there was Harvey Keitel sitting with Jack Clayton, whom I knew from, through Carol Rice, British director. And I said to Jack afterward, can you introduce me to Harvey? Um, and he said, sure. And Harvey had gone out of the room, came back, did. And I said to Harvey, listen, I was just going to try to find out where to reach you because I want to offer you a part in this movie that I'm doing. And uh, I said, I'm up in room 207. Why don't you come up there when you're done with, the, uh, with talking to Jack? So he did, and I said to him, uh, we talked, was sort of friendly for five or ten minutes, and then I said, listen, this is the movie of your life, and it's going to change your life, and I want you to commit right now to doing it. And he said, well, do you mind if I read the script first? And I said, <laughs> I said actually, I do. I think that part of the, of, the, of the way this should be done is that you should commit to doing it before you read the script, just off the awareness that we have some connection together. <laughs> He said, I think I'd really prefer to read the script first. I just so we argued about that for about 10 minutes. And then he said, OK, why don't we say this? I'll commit to doing it, but I also want to read it. And I'll speak to you tomorrow after I read it. So I said, OK, and gave him the script. And then the next day, we uh, pretty much agreed to, uh, to do it. It happened rather fast. What didn't happen fast was the financing, because I said there was really no way of, uh, of getting it. And, and uh, early or easy, the only odd way I could have gotten it, and I resisted the temptation, was Ricky Nelson, who actually was a very bright and nice and crazy guy of Ozzy and Harriet fame and rock and roll fame, came up to the room one day and said, his agent had given him the script, and he said, I just want you to know, I am Jimmy Angelelli. So I said, really? He said, yes. And I said, well, I always had a mad crush on you when I was a kid watching you on Ozzy and Harriet. And I like your singing, but I don't think this is really for you. I'm going to use this guy, Harvey Keitel. He said, well, I can get this movie financed. So if you can't get the money with Harvey Keitel, then get it with me. And I actually, for when things look bleak, occasionally would <laughs> think about it. But uh, then we finally got it. Okay. Um, is there anybody in the audience with a question? <laughs> okay. Start right here. Um, I saw the film when it first opened in 1978, and I was really impressed by it. And one of the things that I really liked about it was the lust is in the air throughout the entire film. Just seeing the man looking at him in the bar, and seeing the little girl looking at him appear. And I just, I just really liked it, and I would like to talk a little bit more about that. Well, that's extreme. You were right in my unconscious, and actually in earlier drafts of the script, because in the first several drafts of the script, really right up until the end, and Harvey objected to my taking it out, there was a very violent homosexual scene in the movie. Because the whole movie, it seems to me, is about a guy who has not figured out whether he is a dick or an asshole. That is to say, he does, he, he does not know which end is which. And his, and his father is looming over him as this sort of colossal dick that he hasn't been able to escape from, which is the irony of the father saying to him, what are you trying to do, stick your prick up my ass, when that's what he's been doing to his son his whole life. But um, the, what, happens, uh, what happened was that scene in the bar involved a lot of look exchanges. And afterward, Harvey went up and was drawn in and went up to an apartment with three of the guys. And uh, it became, uh, I don't want to say pleasantly sexual, I'd say uh, agreeably sexual. And then all of a sudden, Harvey flipped and became very violent. This was in an earlier draft. And the scene became very brutal. 
And it was Harvey's favorite scene in the movie. And I, uh, I can't honestly remember why I, I felt it would derail the movie, but at the last minute I took it out. And Harvey really was, was angry. He felt that it was a scene that was needed. And up until a couple of years ago, used to say to me, we always should, we should have done that scene. We should have had that scene in. The other one you ta talked about came out of nowhere. Um, it wasn't written in. That little girl was not written in. But I always felt the scene needed something that it didn't have. And the night before we were going to shoot it, I was in McDonald's, 11 o'clock at night on 3rd Avenue in the 80s, and I see this beautiful little seven-year-old girl. And I, all of a sudden, it hit me. She ought to be in that scene tomorrow. So I went up to her and I said, <clears throat> um, may I speak to your mother? Because um, I want to talk to you about being in a movie tomorrow that I'm shooting. And she said, is Joe Namath in it? And I said, <laughs> I said, no, but Ed Marinaro's in it, who was playing for the Jets at the time. She said, I don't like Ed Marinaro as much as Joe Namath. I said, well, I can't help that. But I said, I would love to talk. To Where is your mother? So she said, I don't know. I said, well, whom are you with here? She said, I'm here alone. And I said, how old are you? And she said, seven. And I said, well, I said, do you usually come to McDonald's at 11 o'clock at night? She said, yeah. So we took a walk together, and I told her about the movie. Eventually, we were going to go back to her apartment, which she had the key to, and her mother was going to be there eventually, she said. Uh, <laughs> We, we ended up going into Central Park. Uh, the, the, it was in the summer. And it was, uh, no, it was the winter, actually. But we went into Central Park, and there was a, a very, um, there was a kind of uh, intimate series of things going on in the bushes, and I sort of steered her away, and she said, look at those people. But anyway, we ended, we ended up going up to this apartment that she had in Sutton Place, and around 4 in the morning, her mother staggered in, and she had a late date. And here she sees this strange man sitting with her seven-year-old daughter. And um, I said, listen, I know it's odd for me to be here, but, you know, she said, really, you want to use it in the movie? I said, she said, is there a part for me, too? So anyway, that's how it happened. And then a year later, I saw on David Susskind. David Susskind is um, talking to the different kids about how they got their start. So he says to Tina, and how did you get your start? She said, well, I was sitting in McDonald's at 11 o'clock at night, and this director, James Toback, came up to me and said, come here, I want to talk to you. And by, the, by the time she had finished this story, said, I want to use you in a movie, I, I sounded like somebody that you would want incarcerated before the show was over. And David Susskind pumped that up. He kept saying, now say this again. You, he came up to you at 11 o'clock at night, and he walked you into Central Park, and then <laughs> anyway, I, I don't know what's happened to her, but she was uh, very precocious. <laughs> okay. I have two questions. Uh, who were the uh, champions of the United States? Uh, who were the champions of the film, the critics who supported the film when it came out? Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel. Uh, Pauline Kelly wouldn't call a champion, but she had uh, she 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 sort of called attention to it. Um, David Thompson, by far the most important and the best. Who, by the way, if you if you don't know his work, is the best writer about film, I think, by far in the last 30 years in the world, and has a book out called The Biographical Dictionary of Film, which is the best one-volume book about movies, and a terrific book about Orson Welles that just came out called Rosebud. In any event, David Thompson, who wrote at the time for an alternative paper in Boston called The Real Paper, um, which is now defunct, but he wrote a lengthy and really brilliant uh, essay on, on Fingers. Um, and I would say that that's pretty much the nucleus of it. Um, Charles Champlin in the LA Times actually wrote an extremely intelligent and passionate uh, piece about it, but hedged and said a lot of people will find this movie outrageous and disgusting. So, you know, um, 
but it was um, they were those were the nukas, and there were about fifty people who were just furious. And uh, jo John Simon actually wrote an uh, wrote uh, and implied that I was fucking Pauline Kael, and that's why she wrote what she did about the movie, and then said it at UCLA at a at a um, a big um, gathering they had, um, and um, I, they asked me about it on a TV interview after that, and I said, I have fucked Pauline Kale the same number of times I fucked John Simon. So, um, Secondly, can you just say anything about any uh, influences on the film or on any of your other films? Um, you mean, who, who influenced me? Yeah. I, I am uh, I am too megalomaniacal to uh, admit to myself that I'm influenced by anybody. I'm sure I am, but I I hate a lot of people consciously borrow all the time. I would I would I I would not ever do that. Um, I I can't imagine that Orson Welles's love of wide-angle lenses did not influence me because I, the first thing I ever noticed stylistically about movies was the wide-angle lenses in Orson Welles's movie movies and and I read Andre Bazin about that and I, I heard Wells talk about wide-angle lenses and it struck me that there was a whole philosophical uh, justification that one could make for using wide-angle lenses and um, that it's that it was in harmony with what I wanted to do cinematically anyway so I'm sure that that and in particular touch of evil definitely um, uh, had an influence um, but most of my movies and certainly fingers are coming very much from raw personal uh, experience. Um, I studied the piano. I know the gambling world inside out. Um, I lived with Jim Brown for two years in his house. So, um, and I usually develop some kind of personal rapport, a connection with the actors I'm dealing with so that I'm not only having them play a role, I'm using things about them that I know in the movie. That, that as I said, in the case of Jim, it was rather egregious because he had been arrested uh, six times for exactly this, this one act. And I, and, uh, I, I was a bit squeamish about suggesting that he do it in the movie, um, but he went with it, and even, even though I think he knew it would certainly not help his career or image at all. Okay. Uh, does this movie promote violence that people see movies like this and pick it up and then follow the example of crime goes up for movies like this? There's uh, now an organization that's... Sir, I think you have a question. But, no, I didn't. Uh, then the, uh, there's an organization that's called Fairness and Accuracy in Media that uh, is promoting a different outlook on television and the others that are... Uh... Well, unfortunately or fortunately, um, not enough people saw fingers for it to influence anybody. <laughs> but, 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 but... It's nice to see that the, that the movie can still elicit some of what it did when it originally came out. Except that that, that, that used to be the majority response to the movie. I, I was up at Harvard with the movie and got the best response I'd had. And the night 
the next night I was in Dartmouth, and David Thompson, in fact, who I just mentioned was the head of the film department then, and he did put it on a bit thick. He could tell the audience didn't like it since they hissed wildly when the movie ended. <laughs> then he said that anyone who didn't understand that this was a great movie um, really didn't know anything about film, and that 20 years from now, everybody there would realize this was a great movie. And here he is, James Toback. So if it wasn't bad enough, he, may, he was, it's not only did you not like the movie, you're assholes for not liking it, and I came up. And I actually thought I was in physical danger because the questions were uniformly starting with phrases like, where do you come off with, and who do you, it was a really, and I was supposed to say overnight in this little motel in Dartmouth that had no security, and I said, forget it, I don't care. And I rented a car and drove around all night just to get out of Hanover. And there are obviously cases where people see things on the screen and then they decide to do them. Um, and uh, to do them in exactly the way they were done on screen. I don't think that in the long run you can make a case, one can make a case for uh, the censorship that that would entail because it finally comes down to censorship because unless you make things illegal they're going to happen cinematically. And uh, I think that's just part of all free speech in the same way that when one talks publicly and says certain things, it's incendiary. Um, I mean, for instance, um, if uh, I happen to know Louis Farrakhan very well, I knew him when he was around Jim Brown's house, he was one of Jim's best friends, but suppose Farrakhan says something about Jews and then the next day some guy who believes in him and follows him uh, sees some Jew on television and doesn't like him and follows, goes to the studio and stabs him on the street afterward. Now, are you going to say that he is, Farrakhan is not allowed to say even things that might be interpreted as totally bigoted on, on television? Once you let the gates open, I think it's all over. You have lost all free speech. And if movies affect people and they cause them to fuck a dog, then they f cause them to fuck a dog. If they cause them to kill, they cause them to kill. I don't believe that's usually true. But I don't think, I don't take the position that that's never true. Oliver Stone always says violence existed long before movies did. That's true, but that's also evasive of the issue. There are cases where people see a movie and decide that they're going to do what is done on the screen, whether it's of a violent or sexual nature. It probably is more often violent or sexual than it is anything else because those are the things that have the greatest impact. But I think it's, it's ultimately you can make no case uh, in, a, in any kind of freedom of speech oriented society for saying, uh, you know, you, you, we, you, you can't use that or you have a responsibility not to put that kind of stuff in movies. And I think Dole and Clinton together are pandering, repressive, uh, censor-loving, and Paul Simon, too. I think the whole political establishment in this regard is, is cowardly and, uh, and intellectually unserious in the way they deal with the issue. What, what do you think has happened to the climate? Um, one of the things that David Thompson said in his, while, he, while praising the movie fingers was that it was going to be hard for you to continue to make movies like this. And just your experience, um, I mean, certainly you had a very acclaimed movie with, with Bugsy, but it's a different kind of movie. What has been your experience dealing with this sort of material 
since the 1970s in Hollywood, and how has Hollywood changed? It's, well, well the, even George Barry wouldn't finance this movie today. This movie could get financed nowhere by anybody now. If, you, if Scorsese took this script with De Niro, he could not get it financed. There is no way anyone could get this movie financed with any cast. They would just say, reading this script, forget it. Make anything else you want, don't make this. So I think that, you know, I was lucky that I came along at a time where there was at least some openness to this. I think that it's gotten worse and worse and worse. It's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse for doing any movie like this. The only answer to that is to do movies very, very inexpensively and very small. And that's why I did The Big Bang the way I did. Um, not because I, I could have done that expensively. It was designed to be done small. But I was so tired of trying to do movies I wanted to do and finding no way of doing them. I'm almost in that situation again now. I've been spending months and months trying to get Harvard Man set up. Haven't been able to yet officially. There is another movie that I've written in the last three weeks uh, called Two Girls and a Guy, which I can shoot for 10 days for under a million dollars, which I will do if I have to do because I'm getting so frustrated and impatient about the other thing. But that's really the answer, I think, to do it so that it isn't an economic uh, burden. Although, even at a low budget, people don't want to finance movies that are strange or like because they still say, well, we have to distribute and just distribute a movie now and you make any real money, the cost is, is big. Okay, you've been waiting down in front here. First of all, I thought the movie seemed relatively tame compared to what I've seen on the screen. But uh, you mentioned the scene that had been taken out. Had that been shot already? No, just I took it out of the script. By the way, tame, tame in terms of graphic violence and sex, absolutely. It's not tame emotionally, and that's what bothered people, I think, because... If you, if you portray violence or sex in a way that is not real at all, which is what is usually the case, I mean, in these sort of big movies, you see a lot of, you see people beheaded, you see veins pulsating, um, but you do not hear somebody talking about the texture of somebody's pussy. And, um, and uh, you hear a use of a word, but the psychology of that stuff, or a father saying to a son, um, what are you trying to do, stick your prick up my ass? There's a kind, when things get approach emotional seriousness they they are far less digestible to people financing movies when they, there's some distance from them um, the question is um, how many scenes have you shot were trimmed in order to nothing every sh every setup is on the screen we shot the movie in 19 days and every setup is on the screen no i did a lot of tight editing at the last minute in order to uh, in, in order not to waste any time and uh, there every setup is on the screen and um, the editing process was really one of just trimming and choosing takes. As, was every scene shot as written? I mean, this was your first film as a director, and it, it feels like it feels to the viewer like it might have improvisation. Or... There is not a syllable that was not written. It's uh, it's totally unimprovised. Um, the only variety from take to take was in performance, but not in uh, language. I, when you want to do a movie in 19 days like this, you really have to get it down so tight. And um, it was very rigorously rehearsed. And uh, with Mike Chapman, as the cameraman, very carefully staged. So we really knew exactly what we were going to do. Because it was winter, we had short days, and it was 19 days. And we were shooting all over the city. So, and a lot of very raw stuff. And a lot of actors who were not really professional. Several people were, who were doing this as their first movie so it really uh, we, we, we had to be very well prepared what was your what was your personal impetus to creating this film what did you the other half does what did you want people to experience and why uh, well well I, I think uh, it was uh, you know I 
I, I start always with a, a character, a central character, and, uh, who interests me. And I'm saying, what does he do? Okay, this guy is frustrated concert pianist, and he works for his father, and he has two, who's a Sherlock and bookmaker, and he has two parents coming from different worlds. So that was a kind of premise. What does his life revolve around? It revolves around music and a desire to find out who he is sexually and a provocation of death, a kind of interest in dangerous situations. Um, so you start, I start making certain, uh, drawing certain inferences about a character as if he really exists without my having created him. And the more I ask questions about what he would like and what he would do and what he would be interested in, the, the film starts to take shape. After the fact, I can say that all of my movies are dealing with characters who are sexually obsessed, romantically obsessed, uh, have, an, have a, a, a nose for tension and danger and physical violence, and who are on some kind of quasi-suicidal course. So, but that isn't that I consciously set out to do that. It's just after making movie after movie that deals with that, I have to admit that that must be what I'm looking to convey. And is it cathartic? Do it and see. I mean, it's negative in a you know moral sense, but personally, you know, is that is it part of it? Uh, yeah, abs absolutely, and in fact, uh, and in fact, I I get very depressed by movies that have happy endings, and that and that and that appear to be giving some kind of hopeful message, uh, because after all, it's very easy for the people on the screen to tell you that they're usually doing much better than you are in life, and uh, and I, I get rather nauseous at these kind of. Uh, um, jingoistic, and I don't just mean that nationalistically, I mean emotionally jingoistic movies that sort of say everything's going to be okay, just hang in there, you know, keep your dreams, keep plugging, you know, and suck my dick, you know, I mean, it's like you, 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 you I get, I just get sick at movies like that from the time I was a little kid, and, uh, and movies that sort of said it, things are not all right, and they're not going to be all right, and life is unnerving and disquieting and ultimately tragic. Then, then I felt I was being told the truth, because in fact the fundamental reality for all of us is we are either going to die suddenly and shockingly when we don't expect to, or we're going to die a rather painful and, and miserable and debilitating and humiliating death, one or the other. And so is everybody else that we care about. So what kind of cheery news is that? You know? And it's not as if all the movies are telling us that all the time. Most of the movies are lying to us and pretending that that isn't true. So I think in a way they cheat you and they make you feeble and less able to handle that stuff. And to me, a moral movie is a movie that gives you some kind of strength to deal with the adversity of life in an honest way and not to feed you some kind of pablum that you pay $8 to get and, and they get enriched and you go off and continue to suffer. The Gambler was a terrific film. I really enjoyed it very much. I was wondering why the studio never released the soundtrack. Music in that I, I'll tell you why. For the same reason that they never promoted the movie properly, um, Frankie Blondes, this is part of studio politics with a lot of movies that have come out, was the head of Paramount when the movie was given the go and when it was shot. And he was 100% behind the movie and was making it the big movie for Paramount. He was fired the day before the movie opened. And Barry Diller, who later became a friend of mine whom I like very much, did what all studio heads do when they come in and they dump on the previous guy's pet projects. It's just, unless the movie's going to be such an obvious hit that it's suicidal not to, and self-spiteful not to push it, 
always you see the rug pulled out from under. And, and overnight, they canceled uh, about 20% of the theaters. The marketing budget was cut in half. And all the things that ordinarily would have been done weren't done. The movie was just absolutely sabotaged. And, um, and the irony, as I say, is that I later became very friendly with Diller. And it wasn't that it was anything personal. It was just... Uh, it was just that that is what a new guy coming in always does to the movies of his predecessor. I, I want to make sure that we talk about Vicky a little bit before we end. So um, I just want to ask you if you could, and this is the script that's published in the issue of Scenario, and a, really an amazing script that was, I guess you started even before Fingers came out. Yeah. Can you just explain kind of briefly what, what that is and then what the story of... Well, uh, Victoria Woodhull, who was, uh, I think, about as fascinating a woman who as has lived in, in, in America since its uh, inception, was a spiritualist, feminist, free lover, uh, journalist, stockbroker, ran for president, a general wild woman who anticipated practically all notions of, um, of the women's movement in the 19th century, and who lived a bizarre and colorful and exciting life that touched on all these aspects of American life. And the self-same brute pictures, George Barry, <laughs> Fabergé, thought that this would make a very good movie and probably a perfume tie-in as well. Um, <laughs> so uh, they, George had been a, a real, uh, George had loved The Gambler. And uh, he came to me and, and said, do you want to write this movie? You're not an obvious candidate for it, but I really like your script for The Gambler. And if you can write me that kind of script, this is good for Vicky, we'll make the movie. So I said sounded good and I, I, I did and I, I finished and he said now who do you want to have directed and I said I want to direct it and that was out of the question it was a very expensive movie six million dollars which in those days is like about 30 now anyway so well let's get an actress first so I went to Faye Dunaway and Faye whom I knew and Faye loved it and was ready and eager and then she and I decided jointly to go to George Cukor um, and George was very much interested and intrigued, and everything was ready. And, uh, and then um, we all got along well. We were going to go ahead. And then um, what happened was the Bluebird opened. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw that from Maurice Maddelink's play. And it was not only lambasted, it was cruelly and viciously slaughtered by the very people who had always supported George Cukor. In particular, Vincent Canby, the, the, the legendary Vincent Canby, who had been a big, big fan of Cukor's, and, uh, and who, in effect, said in his review, this is a senile, helpless, pathetic has-been who can no longer make a movie. And George Barry said to me and to Faye, I'm sorry, I am not going ahead and putting that kind of money into a movie directed by a senile guy who can't direct a movie anymore. The sad truth was that the, that the Bluebird was not a good movie. So it wasn't as if we could sit there and say, what are you talking about? Just because some assholes don't like the movie doesn't mean it's not good. It looked like a movie that showed a director who had lost all of his capacities. The truth is, George then made several very good movies after that. And we knew, Faye and I, that he really was still at the top of his game because he was still very sharp. He just happened to make a movie that didn't work. He was shooting in Russia. There were a lot of problems. He hated Cecily Tyson, and Cecily Tyson hated him, and that made everything miserable. Ava Gardner was fucking the chauffeur. There were all this stuff that was going on, and he had these tales that were very funny tales. It's just that it didn't work for him. Anyway, that killed the movie. and. Um, and uh, uh, I sort of hoped it would, you know, revive, and now maybe it will get revived because the script has always been 
something that all of us have loved. George always wanted to do it. Faye, to this day, always... She's unfortunately too old now because there'll never be anyone who would have been as right for the part as she was. Okay, right here. How much did Fingers cost $900,000, of which uh, a rather generous amount went to Harvey Keitel, Jim Brown, and me, given the budget. I mean, we, the three of us got a total of 300000 so the actual below-the-line cost was 600000 Okay, right here. Um, I was just curious about uh, whether the figures were like a similarly attached film for these moral reasons. Like, I don't know anything about how Taxi Driver was received. Much better. Taxi Driver got good reviews. And, and why is that? Taxi Driver had a studio behind it and was well promoted and well distributed and had a happy ending. If Taxi Driver had ended the way it was originally written, I think it would have been half as successful at best. It had a very, very cold, hard, dark ending originally, and instead they ha they tacked on that ending, which let people come out of the theater with something different. Okay, and last question over here. Did you make money? Actually, uh, well, I made you know for those days a fair amount of money. I, I never got any residuals from it uh, or, or profit participation. The movie actually gro has grossed worldwide now over six million dollars, so it's actually returned very well on its original investment, which few people know. And whenever they say you know movies that can't make money, but you know if you if you make them for nine hundred thousand, they 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 almost can't lose money, and no money was spent distributing it. The movie had an advertising budget of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars total for the whole country. Um, and I said to George, how is anybody going to know it's there if you don't know, if you don't advertise? George Barry. And he said, they'll walk in front of the theater. So I said, is that the way you, you, you advertise Fabergé cosmetics? They go in the drugstore and they see it on the shelf. <laughs> uh, so thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.